This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT podcast. I'm Dr Joe Preston and I'm a geriatrician at St George's in Tooting in South London. And I'm Dr Ian Wilkinson. I'm a geriatrician at East Surrey Hospital in Redhill in the UK. And today we're going to be talking about supportive care in older adults living with cancer and we have a special guest with us in the studio. Hello, um, my name is Lara Cowley. I am a palliative specialist and therapies manager at a hospice down in the southeast on the coast. And um, we've also had a little bit of help from Shana Hanlon, who is a geriatrician specialising in cancer care, who was in Reading but moved back to Ireland recently. Yeah. And coming up this week, we're going to have a think about some of the problems experienced by older people with cancer. We're going to have a thinking about an understanding, really, of the role of rehabilitation and supportive care in the maintenance of well-being in people with cancer and what that is. We're going to think about when somebody may benefit from a more holistic support and hopefully get you to be just a bit more confident to talk about someone living with cancer and their options for uh, various types of supportive care. What we're not going to talk about today is the specifics of cancer treatments in older adults, not least because it's a very, very diverse area, but also because it's beyond the scope of one episode. So we are planning to do another episode which goes into a little bit more detail about the specifics of cancer care, so-called active treatment, although I don't really like that term because supportive treatments are very active as well. Things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy, we will do a separate episode on. So this is about getting you comfortable with the concepts around cancer care, some specific things you might come across in people who are living with cancer in your routine job. But before we do that, we are going to have a quick dip into social media. Mm. What have you seen? So this week, I have a tweet this week, uh, and I have a tweet from... Well, a range of people, actually. A whole load of my favourite people. All have sort of contributed to this this little feed. But so we'll, we'll start off with, like, the originator, who is Linda Dykes, uh, who's at Dr Linda Dykes. And this is a infographic about delirium, essentially. There's, it's, it's a good infographic about delirium with uh, saying, number one, look out carefully for delirium with a picture of a telescope. And then number two, harness the power of the family. And then number three, find or stop any culprit medications. And then number four, uh, orientate people. And then she's taken that from uh, kind of some stuff that Dan Dan Thomas, who works with us uh, on the MDT club, uh, has done. And then the, the the thing that made me spot it actually was a reply to that by Rowan Harwood, who's at Rowan Harwood, and I would encourage you to follow him. And he's a professor of geriatric medicine in Nottingham. And his reply was uh, people started talking about diagnosing delirium and the causes and his reply is in my experience you won't find a credible cause for at least a third of the cases of clinically convincing delirium and I think that's very true Mm. Um, we talk about the many many causes but I think just don't be afraid just to say this person has delirium and I don't know the cause and Mm. it's fine not to know. As long as you've looked. As long as you've looked and as long as you recognise they've got delirium and you're doing Mm. something about trying to treat it and orientate people sometimes that's enough. Mine is from the St George's Speeches, <laughs> who are our speech and language therapists at St George's, who have their own Twitter account. And recently they were doing a communication week to kind of emphasise their role in communication and not just follow assessments. So they were very active on Twitter and they did lots of going around the wards and talking to people. And they had a really nice um, infographic about the communication problems 
faced in particular by people with Parkinson's disease. So I thought you'd be quite interested in this. So I'm just going to talk through some of them now, and it's really nice bright pink, so it's good. So it says language. So the words are content of the message that they're trying to say. So you might miss the meaning of what they're trying to say. They might be unclear in expressing themselves. Changes can be quite subtle, and then later it can be quite obvious. They have reduced expression, so lots of communication is nonverbal. So they have reduced uh, use of their hands, their arms and their face quite often. So you might be a bit unsure about how that person might be feeling or what their reactions are because you can't use those nonverbal cues in the same way. So their speech might be affected as well through articulation and pronunciation. So their speech might be slurred, their words might run together. And sounds are missed out in about 50 to 60% of the sounds that they're trying to make. Intonations, that melody of speech, can be flattened as well. So the speech sounds quite monotonous. Uh, there's one level of loudness and pitch. And then thinking about their voice, so their phonation and their vocal notes. They have quite a quiet voice quite often and they may not be aware that they're whispering and they're harder to hear. So I thought it was quite a nice kind of breakdown of the different mm. different areas. It's a really pretty infographic as well, so we'll, we'll tweet that and put a link to it in uh, the show notes and on the website. So this time we're going to start with a definition which is not of cancer, um, but is of supportive care, and this is from the National Cancer Institute. So they define this as the care given to improve the quality of life of patients who have serious or life-threatening disease. The goal of supportive care is to prevent or treat as early as possible the symptoms of a disease, side effects caused by treatment of a disease, and the psychological, social and spiritual problems related to a disease or its treatment. It can be called comfort care, palliative care and symptom management. Nice, nice really, isn't it? It's a nice, simple definition, covers it all. But I think it's important to think that... There are elements of that that sound like good geriatric care yes. and then there's yes. elements of that that sound much more like palliative, palliative care. care exactly yeah. i think sometimes it's i always find it quite hard because i'm just a little bit jealous of palliative care services they've managed to set themselves up in this way that they're able to do psychological and spiritual support where we'd quite often like to in geriatrics but it's just not quite set up in the same way i think also what's happened is um if you think about it it's still quite an evolving area mm. so they've had a chance to kind of really work with the biopsychosocial element of it whereas perhaps some of the other medicine is working with that older model yeah. We know that we're teaching to kind of think about it as a wider and broader topic, but yeah, they've really, really nailed their definitions yeah. to something yeah. that really covers the essence I of think the person. That's, that's a good point, actually, and it, it's sort of been in the common parlance since that specialty has developed, and so it's kind of gone with it and, and set up amongst that, whereas everything else is kind of set up in a different way. Betwixt that and, 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 and trying, trying to come, to, trying to come. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so next, we have a definition about cancer rehabilitation. So that's defined as medical care that should be integrated throughout the oncology continuum and delivered by trained rehabilitation professionals who have it within their scope of practice to diagnose and treat patients' physical, psychological and cognitive impairments in an effort to maintain or restore function, reduce symptom burden, maximise independence and improve quality of life in this uh, medically complex population. And that's from the uh, from an article in Supportive Care and Cancer from 2015. And we'll put the link of that to, in the show notes. Mm. And, and I think, again, that's nice, isn't it? It covers kind of this... Well, it, it kind of introduces this idea of rehabilitation within the context of cancer care. Mm. And that actually rehabilitation is not just a physical process of improving strength and improving mobility, which is often where we, we think and posit it. But actually there's there's more to it in sort of psychosocial, cognitive, um, and about reducing symptom burden, I think, as well, which is something that's a bit different to where we would normally think about rehabilitation. I think as physios, what we've done is we've kind of coined the term rehabilitation, but actually if you look at the definition of it, it is about allowing a person to be at their maximum ability, whether that's physically, mentally, spiritually. So 
Actually, it's quite difficult to find another word that summarizes it in such a well way. But yeah, so it's it's quite nice. It's about the essence of the person again, rather than what we're trying to return them back to. So practically, I made up this definition. I kind of said this is any treatment or management plan, regardless of which team is delivering it, which focuses on supporting quality of life rather than augmenting the primary disease process. We're yeah. all nodding. Yeah. Let's carry yeah. on then. Yeah, cool. Have. So I guess one good place to start is thinking about the diagnosis of cancer. And we're not going to talk at length about that, other than really to say that the diagnosis of cancer can be made through a different, a series of different modes. So the first is someone who has a progressive set of symptoms that ultimately we find out the cause for, like a respiratory cancer or lung cancer or a bowel cancer, where they may have had some symptoms for a while before that have been getting worse and ultimately turning up in a diagnosis. Secondly, there are those people who come with non-specific symptoms like weight loss or an anemia that has come for investigation or maybe abdominal pain or something. And actually through those series of investigations, even though the, the, the symptoms aren't necessarily progressing, the diagnosis does and then you find the diagnosis. And then the third are those people that just present incidentally. So they come for, I don't know, one thing they, they, they've fallen over and they've hurt their chest and they've broken a rib and so they have a ct scan of the chest and that shows that in the little bit of the liver they have to capture there's a metastasis and then you go on and you investigate and you find find the cause and each of those three different modes i guess sets people up with a different mindset and a different starting trajectory for the rest of their illness and, and the support that you'll give them will need to be different depending on, on where they've started from. Yeah, and so kind of the point of explaining it that way is to kind of recognise that you might be in those second two categories. You may not work in a, in a cancer centre and, and be seeing people who are having respiratory cancers per se, but you will more than likely see people in those other two categories and people will be at different stages of their journey when you meet them and your primary goal when you meet them might be very different to what you think cancer rehabilitation mm. might be, but it's it's everyone's responsibility to know about these things and to actively engage with it. And I know in Brighton, we were talking to one of the Brighton consultants earlier on today, and he was saying that uh, in their rapid access clinic for the geriatric medicine clinic, a, a large proportion of those patients ultimately turn out to have a malignancy or have come and have a malignancy at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I certainly see that in my clinics I'm doing as well now. Like, um, obviously, it's a selecting group, um, people who think very much uh, are likely to have cancer or uh, very good candidates for treatment are likely to be triaged into a cancer clinic. Um, people that's a little bit less uh, well-determined may present in, into geriatric general clinics as well. Particularly weight loss is the big thing that, that they present with. So geriatric oncology is expanding. So as the population ages, I saw a nice quote while I was looking, while I was kind of researching this, saying that all oncologists are geriatric oncologists. They're all treating people who are older. Older adults are more likely to have cancers. So it's a responsibility of all oncologists to to know about the impact that cancers will have on their older adults. And they all need to be able to recognise some of the unique needs of older adults and it's kind of increasingly being recognised that routine evaluation will not necessarily recognise all the things that's, that they need. It's going to be kind of inadequate. So um, increasingly there's recognition for a comprehensive geriatric assessment to supplement usual oncology care, um, to look for predictive models of survival and functional decline and use those in, in deciding what, what treatments you're going to offer. 
And also that clinical trials have not really met the needs of older adults so far and that's something that really needs to be addressed. And as I said, we're going to do a future episode on this in a little bit more detail. It's worth bearing in mind that 46% of cancer survivors are over 65. So cancers increase in incidence with advancing age. And also there is an increasing prevalence of cancer in older people, both by those new diagnoses, but also people who have become old who also happen to have a cancer. Mm. And also there's um, increasing numbers of people who have survived cancers and the specific needs that they have as they age as well. So one of the studies done by Tim Alital in uh, 2010, they looked at people with metastatic lung cancer in which half were over 65 years of age. They found that the early involvement with palliative care and oncology treatment really improved the quality of life um, with their measures that they were looking at. So these included better symptom management for things such as pain and nausea, improved quality of life, prognostic understanding, better caregiver outcomes, mood, end-of-life outcomes, survival, um, and resource utilisation. And I think that's just a really good example of sort of summarising that transition between active care versus going into supportive care. And it's it's no longer that sort of straight line. It's merged a lot more. And there are certain sort of um, diagnoses that we tend to say actually earlier input, talking about how things may advance, can have a really good outcome. I thought this is a really important study. I know it's been replicated many times, but showing that there's often a misconception of palliative care being when people are dying and that this showed that actually you were more likely to survive if you had good palliative care. So it's really important. And in 2012, the American Society of Clinical Oncology actually stated that palliative care should be part of standard cancer care for all patients with metastatic disease and or significant symptom burden. And there's also increasing recognition that palliative care should be considered to extend into survivorship. So survivorship includes not just patients who are in remission, but where cancer has become a chronic disease. Looking at people who have chronic toxicity of therapy, um, they're going to require various forms of palliation. And it's particularly important in older adults as well. So next we're going to talk about rehabilitation. So cancer rehabilitation, similar to stroke and orthopaedic rehabilitation, uses a multidisciplinary approach to assessment and treatment, which helps to address the disease-related and treatment-related impairments. To decrease the number and or severity of impairments and long-term problems and minimise survivors' distress and disability. And patients often have anxieties of becoming a burden, uh, both to their family but also to other people that may be looking after them, be that their, their carers or their the staff in the homes where they live, and feel that... You know that that you you often hear that people talk about. Oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want this. I don't. I don't want people to have to look after me. And, and that, and that might influence people's choices about treatment yeah, as well. Completely, and it may influence where people choose to live. And people may choose to move maybe sooner than they physically need to because they're they're worried about being a burden on people and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to sort of work through that with people and explore where do they want to live and why why are they making that choice and where do they want to die and why are they making that choice and um, rehabilitation in the context of cancer care allows you to, to do this at a time that that is is appropriate really I think there's a really nice, I always coin the phrase um, from the, uh, was a paper called um, Rehabilitative Palliative Care. They use the phrase parallel planning. So rehab gives us a fantastic avenue to parallel plan. So we're aiming for the best, but we can tentatively go there to the places that patients don't want to talk about, they perhaps are quite worried about. And obviously for us as healthcare professionals, we quite often know what's coming. We quite often know maybe what the next level of deterioration would look like. 
but it's quite hard to help to support the patients. Mm. But I think something you've also just talked about is is that you can't separate the patient from their family or their main caregiver when you're dealing with cancer because it is a whole unit. And obviously when they become very, very poorly, they often need a great deal of support. So it's quite important looking at how we can support the family. They've often got a lot of questions that need some support with that as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really important being able to help support them with that as they make those difficult decisions. We know that older adults in particular are at increased risk of having functional decline and frailty anyway, and for this group who have a diagnosis of cancer, further small deterioration functions can have a disproportionate impact on their capacity for independent living. So it's something really important to think about. The loss of function is then interwoven with the multiple losses that palliative patients may experience in, in multiple domains. And so the therapeutic relationship really needs to be developed with working with patients to regain function and allows patients to explore the meanings of those losses and then reframe them in a new context. There's a need to think about and pay attention to the nutritional status in relation to function. Um, obviously, you, if you're not nutritionally balanced, if your nutritional intake is not enough, you will very rapidly have a reduction in your functional ability um, through muscle loss and you know a whole host of different factors really and I guess that just just highlights to me that you know that may present to to you but it's it's it's, you know it's your job to do something about that and refer people on and do things and actually rehabilitation and prehabilitation which talk at in a minute in people with cancer is everybody's responsibility and it it shouldn't just be confined to specialist services actually we can all do this as people that look after older people. And there's this really nice document that um, Lara shared with us um, doing this from the Char- CSP, what does it sound yep, Charter Society of Physiotherapists. Um, who have made a really accessible leaflet called So Your Patient Has Cancer for Physiotherapists, which we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk through a little bit now. Um, so some of the specific things that people who are living with cancer may experience and um, so you know to look for them and what you might do about them as well. They are quite conveniently written alphabetically, which pleased me <laughs> in a really nerdy way. So the first is A for arthralgia. Don't worry, it's, there's not a whole alphabet coming. Um <laughs> arthralgia so people who are undergoing some of the hormone treatments uh, so they might be used for cancers that are hormone sensitive or hormone dependent they may suffer arthralgia which can be quite distressing and quite disabling Um, and that can usually be managed with standard physiotherapy management such as exercise programs acupuncture hydrotherapy and advice it doesn't often need anything specific doing about it it really just comes back to good basic pain management and all the things that should encompass that. So we, again, you know, we're trying to move away from that model that it's another medication that patients take. It is always worth looking at other other avenues. There's also an awful lot coming out there for the evidence of relaxation in calming down sort of overactive systems when it comes to pain. So, and those are quite nice achievable things that we can support patients to to um, get involved with. Next is B. There are a couple of Bs. Um, bone metastases. So it's about maintaining mobility. Well, it's about recognising that maintenance of mobility is important in older people and that for treatment for somebody with bone metastases should be done on an individual basis and it's important to use mobility and strengthening goals where they are appropriate. Um, For example, in some people avoiding high-impact activities and being aware that localised pain may well be a sign of disease progression. 
particularly think, pain at night, actually. Mm, and I think one of the things, um, you know, it's kind of talking out to the physios out there or the allied health professionals, as soon as you read bone metastases, we tend to have a little bit of a panic attack and think we can't touch this patient, we can't do anything. And actually, a lot of patients live with bone metastases. And we would be getting them up, we would be getting them around, uh, maintaining their mobility the best that we can, obviously within reason and what's suitable to them. But it certainly doesn't mean that it's a complete hands-off, no exercise approach. It really, really needs to keep uh, managing and keeping them as strong as possible, particularly with then the limbs that might not have the metastases because they need to be stronger to support the system, support the body. We can still keep people functional despite maybe something that might look quite difficult and challenging. Next is breathlessness, which we probably shouldn't go into too much detail because that's like a whole subspecialty of <laughs> physiotherapy, isn't it? Um, and we have just done an episode on ageing lungs. We so have, we've talked yes. about the, <laughs> so some of the supportive <laughs> measures about how to yeah. support someone with breathlessness yeah. in, in that episode. But what would be the key things that you would say for breathlessness? Um, I think the key things is you're looking at the driving factors. What's causing it? Is it deconditioning? Is it pathology? Um, or is it anxiety? There's a big thing coming forward now about anxiety-related breathlessness um, and the strategies that you can use to manage that. So it's definitely helpful to get out there, look on the internet, mm. figure out what's causing the breathlessness, and then that will help inform your treatment. And the next is continence, which is something very common that uh, often people are, are, have some awareness of already. And thinking about it in relation to cancer treatment, particularly pelvic radiotherapy, people may experience continence problems both for urine or feces a number of a number of years later. Um, and we've talked about continence in uh, urinary continence in an episode, and we've got one on fecal incontinence in this series as well. But particularly to think about that in people with pelvic cancers. The next is fatigue associated with cancer. This is a this is a really challenging one, and I would say the majority of patients with cancer, um, it's either cancer related fatigue or treatment related fatigue with it. It has a huge impact. Um, it's very very complex. It's very common, and there are a lot of things that we can do. And I think one of the key things is is it's really multi dimensional. So again, it's part of your assessment trying to unpick why. So when we're looking at it, it can last for a number of years, but what's leading to it? Is it poor sleep? Is it affecting the mood? All physios should be able to identify cancer-related fatigue and have a good basis of how to work, provide basic advice. It would be the same as working with anybody with fatigue. Um, but it does also then inform your treatment. You need to tailor how gung-ho you might be working with some individuals. So, you know, if patients with cancer-related fatigue, there is a spectrum of actually burning them out further. So it really is testing your strategies that you're using with them. Just talking to one of our OTs today, and he had a phrase about it really is in the nuts and bolts of what they do every day mm. and really unpicking that to find out what might be some of the drivers behind the fatigue. And occupation therapists can help with energy conservation training as well. And that's looking at practical strategies to manage their fatigue day to day so they can continue with their normal roles and their routines. And it might be things like prioritising um, their tasks for the day and that kind of thing to help them manage that. Next is lymphedema, which is a collection of fluid within the lymph systems usually occurs after lymph node infiltration by cancer, which sort of blocks up the lymph system, or after surgery where the lymph nodes have been removed. Um, lymphedema we've talked about previously as a condition that affecting the lower limbs, whereas in cancer-related lymphedema, it, it can affect anywhere. And it's much more common in the upper limbs, uh, particularly after people have surgery for breast cancer and the lymph nodes have been removed, and can be associated with pain and tenseness in the, in the skin, reduced range of movement, and can be quite 
really quite disabling and, and difficult to manage. And the occupational therapists, in conjunction with the lymphedema teams and the specialist nurses uh, and the specialist clinics, may well be able to come up with different strategies, including sort of the compression hosiery to the arms and, and various other things that can be done and try and help sort of relieve some of the symptoms associated with this. And the thing with the lymphedema, it's one of the ones that, that's, that's long-lasting. So even mm. if you are a cancer survivor, a lot are living with maybe then lifelong lymphatic changes. And that can be quite difficult because although you may be walking around with a clear diagnosis, you still have these long-term yes. implications which, which have you know, quite a big impact on how they get back to life. Nerve damage is quite common, so peripheral neuropathy is a really common side effect of chemotherapy treatment, and sometimes it's temporary while they're having the treatment, but in some instances it's permanent. And sometimes surgery for cancer can damage nerves or cause nerve impingement at the time, leaving them with uh, longer-term nerve damage and nerve pain that can be quite difficult to treat. Check back a couple of episodes on pain before. We've done one on pharmacological management of pain and one on non-pharmacological management of pain. Uh, So some cancer patients, for example, um, people with breast cancers or gynecological cancers and prostate cancer are at increased risk of developing osteoporosis due to the treatment that they've received. So it's worth bearing that in mind, especially as people survive cancers, which is what we're aiming for. We don't then want to give them osteoporosis as a consequence of that. So it's thinking about some of the treatments that they have and preempting the problems they might have later on and managing that proactively. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is some of the haematological malignancies. People are on high doses of steroids and, and you get a huge amount of bone loss in the first six weeks on steroids. Mm. So if you're going to have someone that you're thinking is going to need steroid treatment for a little while, put them on bone protection at the beginning rather than waiting six months ago. oh, I should probably do this now. And there are quite well set up pathways, particularly for those people with uh, breast cancers going on the, the CIRMs. Uh, things like letrozole and such like, to have DEXA scans as part of their treatment protocols and, and, and sort of manage them according to that. Next is pain. Um, so, yeah, I'll take the lead with that. So when we're talking about musculoskeletal, so we abbreviate it to MSK pain, can often occur at the result of where the cancer is or depending on the treatment, particularly if they've had to have surgery, you're going to then get associated scar tissue and limited movement. This is something I'm really passionate about with patients is because, again, as um, medical individuals, we tend to do get frightened about laying our hands on patients with cancer. And it's important to remind yourself, depending on the stages, uh, if they're clear, then you would still be doing your normal treatments. You obviously would do your contraindication things. But the other thing that we tend to forget is that they're all still people with normal problems. They will still have arthritis. They will still have normal MSK injuries. And that tends to get overlooked. And often that can be what's really debilitating for them. So it's a real key um, to definitely not let the cancer influence and make you step back when actually all the more we should probably be looking at what we're doing. And I think as physios, that's where we're becoming experts in anatomy. That's where we can really have a chance to shine with that. Next is psychological issues, and it's estimated that about 80% of patients who have a diagnosis of cancer will have anxiety or depression following their diagnosis. And physios can really help with that as well, can't they? I think it's really lovely, um, you know, with our physio hat on, we're in a fantastic position because we're doing something positive. We're working towards a goal. And often in when they're undergoing a whole load of treatment, we are one of the ones that's about keeping them doing the things that are important to them. Um, but I think also it widens out to all health professionals. We all have a role. Mental health is a big challenge. Uh, you know, these days we all need to be much more aware of it. And 
somebody's needs if they're having supportive palliative uh, cancer management versus somebody who's had active treatment and they're now technically cancer survivors. They're very different needs. And particularly what can happen with the cancer survivors is become very tuned into their symptoms because obviously they're living a life always worried that the cancer's coming back. So quite often it's a responsibility of us to really address that. I quite often call it the elephant in the room, what's really kind of going on behind the scenes and what they're worried about. And it's nice because we get that time, you know, the average physiotherapy follow-up appointments can be 20 to 30 minutes. You don't really get that in routine, you know, in geriatric medicine. It's, it's very, very busy. So we get that chance to really delve in sometimes and then we should be communicating with the wider MDT about the areas that need um, added support. And then finally we have cancer-related cognitive impairment, which is not something I've got too much experience with, but I think is a kind of recognised phenomenon and can present as difficulties with memory, attention, information processing and organisation, and it can affect all age groups. Um, And particularly women with breast cancer can report this quite often, impacting their day-to-day function and making things more difficult. Uh, And that can be obviously quite distressing, um, losing their roles and things changing in their independence in their family lives. And I think it's a really, really tricky one because, you know, if somebody has a coexisting low mood mm-hmm. as a completely yeah. normal response to having, mm-hmm. you know, what what is a is a nasty diagnosis, that will impact, that will impact on your cognition. And mm-hmm. if you're preoccupied about getting to your treatment on time and having your treatment and actually your whole world has been subsumed about this, this mm-hmm. fairly complex set of treatments with all these different people you're going to see, as a completely normal response to that, your cognition may well not be quite so good, mm. and and I would just just you need to be really careful about making mm. diagnoses of dementia in this group of patients, and yeah. you know get people that really know what they're doing to do that. Yeah, because otherwise you, you you end up you know people people's cognition can improve you know yeah. quite dramatically when you remove some of those things. Yeah. And I think also that really impacts on how we relate information to them. So kind of really having that awareness that they might not be taking on all the information from a consultation, um, finding out, do we, you know, does it need to be written? What are the different formats that we need to do to help uh, these patients really maintain that information? Because they, as you say, they're overwhelmed. There's so much going on. I think any of us would struggle to retain the information. So particularly in this patient sample, it's really making sure that they clearly understand what, what is mm. being said to them and what's needed to happen. Mm. So if you want to read a little bit more about that, as we said, the document is CSP, so your patient has cancer. And there's also a nice paper um, about the role of occupational therapy in older adults with cancer and why that matters that we have a link to in the show notes. And that paper on occupational therapy was from our our faculty member, Tracy CK, who is an occupational therapist. And there was a quite a nice bit of it was kind of talking about the role of occupational therapy and saying that adults with cancer are a higher risk group for functional limitations and poor quality of life and things that are everyday like falling. So poor quality of life and functional limitations are then associated with a decreased ability to complete full treatment. Um, They're at increased risk of receiving less intense treatment regime if they perceive to not be able to cope with it. They're increased risk for chemotherapy toxicity and therefore in turn decreased survival. Um, There was a nice review they did and looked and and saw that in patients with metastatic disease, one in five adults with cancer reported cognitive difficulties, 66% reported functional deficits, 
And they stated that they had difficulty with bending, stooping, lifting and getting out of bed and that they needed help with ADLs more often. So you can really see where the role of the the occupational therapist is there in helping to maintain that independence. So there is evidence that the diagnosis of uh, cancer provides a teachable moment um, when discussions about physical activity are likely to be well received by the patient. So many people do need support to change to a healthier lifestyle, especially with physical activity, as they may be fatigued have lack of confidence or they're anxious about causing damage and this is where physiotherapists are in a really nice position to support patients to become more active and obviously with the wider perspective we know that the more physically active somebody is the better they're going to handle Mm. a lot of the treatments that they have to undergo. And I guess that leads on nicely to thinking about well at that point then starting to to encourage people to get more physically active to enable them to be able to cope with and manage this this thing that's going to happen next and all their treatment that we could call prehabilitation. Mm. So it's the same ethos as um, going in for orthopaedic procedure. The stronger you are going into it, the more you're going to be able to manage everything that you have to do. And there's quite a lot of evidence now linking in about increased fitness has increased incidence of cancer survivorship. So there is a very strong role uh, about how important exercise is, particularly when it comes to patients with cancer. And there's some evidence that people with newly diagnosed cancers are able to prepare for upcoming treatments. Prehabilitation can prevent and reduce the likelihood of long-term problems as well. So thinking about why that might be, you, if you're doing exercise, you're going to improve your cardiovascular, your pulmonary and your musculoskeletal function, which in turn hopefully will help you to improve your balance and reduce your risk of falls. Exercise reduces anxiety and improve your coping strategies and coping mechanisms with specific... uh, You can add into that some specific cognitive behavioural strategies before the treatment starts. Um, Hopefully improve the quality of sleep and uh, talk through sleep hygiene and sleep and educating people about that. Um, And we've got some some tips for that on our sleep episode that we did a couple of series ago. Looking at uh, the kinds of interventions that people might have, for example, if they're going to undergo surgery, talking about smoking cessation interventions um, that will help with their lung function prior to going into what can be quite major surgery. Thinking about optimising their diet with nutrition counselling beforehand. Lots of these treatments are quite um, taxing on the body and... Uh, so going in with optimum nutrition is going to help your ability to cope with that treatment. Thinking about uh, preempting some of the complications. So um, if someone's having pelvic surgery, for example, thinking about some of the constant problems that they may have in the future and getting them to do preoperative pelvic floor muscle strengthening exercises, thinking about swallowing, again, doing pre-treatment swallowing exercises if you, you're worried about their swallowing, reducing after the operation as well. Thinking about doing some of your pre um, or some of your discharge planning beforehand, so maybe your uh, a preemptive home visit to look at safety strategies at home and things that you can do to reduce falls following uh, the treatment, and thinking about what equipment people may need to return home or return to work, you know, and and put some of that in place beforehand or get it all ready beforehand. Very much along the lines of the POPs team that talks about do a similar thing with um, high-risk surgery in older people. Yeah, so they've run out of guides in St Thomas's, but there are others around the country like, is it called the Hope Clinic up in Nottingham or Scope Clinic? I'm not quite sure. Um, but they do very similar things. So recognising the sorts of needs that people are going to have after their intervention and putting it in early rather than waiting until afterwards.
And at all stages, opportunities should be taken to assess for care needs. So not just looking at the beginning and say this is what we think is going to happen, but making sure that's a continual process of both the individual and any carriers. As we've talked in other episodes, this is about the whole system. There is a really nice diagram, which um, will be in the show notes, which uh, kind of difficult to describe. Is this the one from the STAR programme with the the divergent lines? Yes, it is. So there's two lines. So you go from diagnosis and you're both on the same line. And then before treatment, there's a prehab arm that uh, has improved function and outcome. And prehab, which just stays where it was. And then they both dip down during acute treatment. But the idea is that the prehab arm will probably come back down to their baseline, whereas the no rehab arm is then trying to get back up to that baseline. And it may get there and it may not. Yeah, so I mean, one of the other things that's really important to remember is when we're dealing with um, an elderly population is they already have a higher incidence of having frailty. Um, So obviously, if we're linking in then having cancer, you've got a much, much higher chance that patients are going to have frailty. But there's a lot of studies now saying, even in uh, studies done in the oldest of the old, we're improving on muscle function when they undergo exercises. So it's to say it doesn't stop just because somebody is frail. Actually, those are points where it's ever more important Mm. that we put strategies Mm. and you take a really active stance on trying to improve things um, because it's quite a good benchmark that we can improve things for them. I was going to say, that's probably the group that's going to get the most benefit Mm. in some ways. Mm. You're going to have tips. We've generated some thoughts because not all services run like that. So um, if you've got some thoughts, some tips, uh, anything you want to, to contribute to this, use the hashtag MDT Club. And Dan Thomas will be collating some of the the ideas and advice uh, and tips that people have got over the next couple of weeks. And we'll we'll publish an infographic on that. Uh, If you've got something you want to let us know, you can let us know via Twitter. And our Twitter handle is at MDT underscore podcast. Or at facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Or if you want to be quiet about it, Mm -hmm. we've not said this for a while, you can use the website to contact us. And that's www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk where you can find all of the previous episodes. You can also find the CPD log, the infographics, the show notes, the curriculum mapping, all the references are in the show notes, uh, the gallery items are there on their own little web page, the MDTs has got its own little page, and loads of stuff. The MDT Podcast. But now. Now. Now it's time. It's time for the MD teaser. <laughs> this is our MDT item guessing game. And this is a catchphrase again, but, but in, in radio format. Um, <laughs> thank you, faculty. And Joe, is it my turn to go first? I want to go first. You want to go first. You go I'm excited it. Go about it. mine. Go for it. Okay. Okay. Are you both ready? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this. There's a man in shorts with a whistle and he's jumping around on the spot. And he's wearing trainers. In one corner, next to a set of scales, there's a lady who's standing on one leg. Sorry, are the trainers important? Can I open it? Well, mm, no clues at this stage. No, okay, right, okay, okay. <laughs> so in one corner, next to a set of scales, there's a lady standing on one leg. And next to her is a man who is doing some weights. Is somebody doing strength training? Yes. And is somebody doing balance training? Yes. Is it strength and balance training? It's balance and strength training, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. I like that. Yeah. That's a good one. On shaft. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so my one. So there is an older gentleman. He is walking along the side of a riverbank. He has a stick with him and he stops 
and he's got a little chair and he sits down in little chair and uh, he gets a little sort of knapsack out next to him and bought a lunch and stuff, you know. And then he's sort of sat there and whiling away his time, staring off into space and then sees the river and obviously, um, you know, starts thinking about what to do. So he picks up his stick and it's like this telescopic stick, actually, and it suddenly becomes telescopic and then he, he wires it up and then starts fishing with this stick. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> So he's, he's walking along, he's got a yeah. stick with him, sits down next to the river. The stick becomes a rod from which he's fishing. Right. That's it. What's what's the stick? What type of stick is it? I don't, I'm waiting for Laura to kick in on this I'm one. Really so I'm really not there. should know. I'm really not there. Okay, okay. So it's an elderly gentleman with rheumatoid arthritis <laughs> who's walking along with the stick, who has to use the stick to go fishing. Oh, fishing! Oh, oh, is it? It's um, fishing fish, stick. Fish fish stick. stick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I can claim defence on that. We can no longer have funding to issue them on the NHS. So one of the new generation physics <laughs> will not know what those are. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Okay. So that is a stick that has an adapted handle for yes. someone with arthritis, where the weight goes through the palm rather than through the hands. Yes. Yeah. Another one for you. So pinned to our Twitter page, you will find your own catchphrase, which is visual because it's on Twitter rather than being on the radio. So have a look at that. See what you think it is. Use the hashtag MDTeaser and try and win an MDT mug. And I may even throw in an MDT lanyard. Mm. And now, uh, Joe, it's your time for the gallery this time. What have we got? And this is a poem of Anacreon. When I see the young men play... Young me thinks I am as they. And my aged thoughts laid by, to the dance with joy I fly. Come, a flowery chaplet lend me. Youth and mirthful thoughts attend me. Age be gone, will dance among. Those that young are, and be young. Bring some wine, boy, fill about. You shall see the old man stout. Who can laugh and tipple too, and be as mad as well as you? And the MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. 